It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with me, Mandy Bell, Guardian's beat reporter for MLB.com, and Sarah Langs, researcher, reporter, everything basically for MLB.com as well. Sarah, we I, we obviously know that this second half of the show is going to be all World Baseball Classic. You are finally home. You got home just hours ago at the time of us recording this um, from your two-week world traveling excursion to follow all of this so we won't get into it too much now i'm going to put you on the spot though and say one word one word i'm going to limit you to one on summing up this entire experience i'm going to go electric i mean every crowd that i witnessed from the sold out crowd at the usa mexico game to all of the sold out crowds in miami but also the 10,000 and 9,000 person crowds at the noon games in Phoenix, they were just as loud, I swear, and they were just as into it. So I'm gonna go electric for all that. Okay, I have a trillion more questions of how these all went, but we'll, we'll get to that later. We have to get to more important things first. We are finally at the end of our division by division preview. We will go to the NL East today. We have Anthony DeComo, our Mets reporter for MLB.com. Anthony, first of all, just thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And I have to say that was kind of a trick question for Sarah because the best is two words, so she couldn't pick it. So she has to, yeah, she exactly. has to do something else. I have to challenge her sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's we got we to gotta get more creative here. So proud of you, Sarah. Um, <laughs> I really didn't think you would do yeah. it. Um, Anthony, we'll just start with, I guess, the obvious as we're sort of talking about the WBC and everything that's been uh, focused on with the Mets is obviously Edwin Diaz, that freak accident of him celebrating. Um, everyone got to see him have to be sort of wheeled off the field. There, his brother was crying. Brutal scene. And now we know that he'll be missing some significant time. So what, what was the sort of vibe around Mets camp during that? And then now how do they continue on without the best closer in baseball? Yeah, I mean, look, the vibe was what you'd expect. It was tough, it was difficult. Um, you know, a couple of Diaz's teammates were there at the WBC, especially Francisco Lindor, who said he didn't know what happened when it happened and he looked down and all of a sudden he just saw someone lying on the ground and he saw trumpets on his spikes and that's how he knew that it was diaz and it was just like it was a heart-wrenching kind of thing to hear these guys talk about it especially those who were there in the building that night but it happens the mets know it happened and they know they have to move on so you know there's two ways to look at it one is that 
Edwin Diaz is irreplaceable. No one who steps into that role uh, almost certainly is going to have the type of season and the type of impact that he had on the Mets last year, both in terms of the baseball stuff, but also just uh, there's a mental side of that, especially from the closing game where, um, you know, we were talking to John Franco earlier today and Al Leiter actually as well. And they were in camp and, and one of them, I apologize, I don't remember which one, but mentioned how it was similar to when Mariano Rivera was playing. And it was like he came in the game and it was game over. And there's this mental edge that you get as a team when that happens. So no one's going to be able to replace that. But if you look at it from a practical standpoint, Edwin Diaz is a one-inning reliever. There's a reason why Pete Alonso and Francisco Lindor got heavy MVP consideration last year and Edwin Diaz did not because guys who play every day tend to have bigger impacts. So if you're going to lose an absolute superstar and someone who's part of that core in the heart of the team, um, this is one that the Mets can get past. They have guys on the staff in David Robertson, Adam Adovino, who have closing experience. More than that, once you get, especially towards the trade deadline, June, July, inventory is always there for relief pitchers. Generally, there are a handful of really, really good relievers on the market. So if the Mets have a pressing need still at that time, it's one of the easier places where they can go and upgrade. So Obviously not something anyone wants to talk about, anyone wanted to have to endure in terms of um, Mets camp and, and looking forward, but it is something they can get, get past. This is still a really good roster. This is still a team that's capable of winning the World Series if things break right for them, even without the services of Edwin Diaz. So speaking of that really great roster, we absolutely have to talk about some changes that did occur for the roster in the offseason. I'm staring at the pitching and looking at the projected rotation. And of course, there's Justin Verlander and the fact that this team, at least to start the season, has two future Hall of Famers headlining that rotation in whatever order they end up coming out in. But then there's the fact that all of these guys are over the age of 35. And I remember talking with you or slacking with you during the winter meetings when the Mets got Verlander and then uh, Jose Quintana, who is now out in inter- and talking about how many teams have actually gotten, say, 25 or 30 starts from four guys at that age. So we've already seen injury in that rotation with Quintana. What are the expectations for how the middle to back end of this rotation will look, not just to start the year, but where do you think it ends up by the end of the year? Who is that most common sort of four or five guy? Yeah, I mean, look, this is that's always the risk with having a rotation full of older pitchers is that you have to be concerned with injuries. It's just a fact. People don't want to hear it, but older pitchers get injured more often. That That is a fact. And I feel like people, well, you say, oh, no, of course, these guys are different. And they are different. The ceilings of a Max Scherzer and a Justin Verlander at their age is so much higher than the common pitcher. The common pitcher doesn't make it to that age. These guys are future Hall of Famers. So um, sure, they have a much greater chance to succeed at age 38 and age 40 than most guys. But you do have to build in contingency plans, knowing when you build up an older rotation, guys are going to get hurt. It is inevitability. The good news for the Mets is that they probably have more rotation depth than they have really at any point that I've been covering the team, and I've been doing this um, longer than I'd like to admit at this point. Um, So they actually have a bona fide, legitimate battle for that fifth spot with two really good candidates in David Peterson, a former first-round pick who made 19 starts for them last year, 
And Tyler McGill, who trivia buffs will remember, was the Mets opening day starter last year for similar reasons. Jacob deGrom couldn't do it. Max Scherzer needed an extra day or two. So, so Tyler McGill stepped in and until he got hurt, was one of the best pitchers in baseball, actually. So that's going to be a tough decision. Both have pitched really well for the Mets this spring. I would lean towards them choosing Peterson for the fifth spot just because he's got a little more experience. Um, he's got a little longer runway of, of pitching well over the last year. Um, but even so, they're going to the Mets are going to use Tyler McGill significantly this year. They picked up uh, some other depth starters. Eliezer Hernandez, who has started quite a bit for the Marlins over the past couple of years, he's going to make starts for the Mets at some point this year. I don't know if it's going to be in April or July or August, but he will make starts. Joey Lucchese, who people forget about, um, a trade acquisition for the Mets a few years ago, he's healthy now after Tommy John surgery. He's going to make starts. So um, you can kind of go down the line and... Uh, the Mets didn't want to dip into that depth so soon. The Jose Quintana injury forces them to. Um, but they knew where they were going to have to eventually. That's why they built this up. That's why they have um, guys who, frankly, they were counting on being their six, seven starters. And for that reason, you didn't hear any talk this spring, even before Quintana's injury, of David Peterson going to the bullpen, despite the need for a lefty down there. Tyler McGill going to the bullpen, despite the fact that everyone has always kind of salivated at the idea of this guy throwing 101 in short relief. Um, they knew that they were going to need those guys as starters. So even if everyone were healthy, they would probably both be in Syracuse stretching out. Now, instead, one of them is going to be in the rotation. And like I said, before long, trust me, they will both get starts. So the Mets are pretty confident in that in that first level of depth that they have in their rotation right now. I have to ask a Francisco Lindor question just because I'm at least closely related to the topic. Um, he got off to such a slow start when he first went to the Mets, and so much so that any time that Andres Jimenez literally did anything, all he had to do was just breathe or stand in the box, and Cleveland fans were ready to say they won the trade. They were so pumped because, oh, look what Lindor's doing, and look at Ahmed Rosario and Andres Jimenez. It was very comical how quickly that happened. I know Sarah was texting me. Um, about it when she came to Cleveland saying that uh, people in the car, like her Uber driver was so confident that they won the trade. Um, and so it was so funny. Obviously, he started to settle in. You already referenced before how much better his season was last year. What do you think the biggest difference for him was? And how do you see him continuing to grow with this organization, the more comfortable he's getting in New York? Yeah, I honestly think, Mandy, it was 90% mental with Lindor. I, I think... You've seen that before with athletes who come to New York and really just aren't used to, people talk about the number of the media, but there is a level of criticalness that comes with it that you just frankly don't see as much of or as consistently in other places. And I think that took some getting used to for Francisco Lindor. He got off to a slow start, um, you know, his first year in New York. And I don't think he was totally prepared for the backlash that he was going to receive. And it's not just New York. It also comes with 341 on your back, the you know $341 million contract that he signed immediately after getting traded just before opening day. That was supposed to be a coup for the Mets. And after a year, it looked like, uh-oh, what did they do? Um, so there was a ton of pressure on Lindor to kind of come through and get back to being Francisco Lindor. And, you know, to say something cheesy, get back to being Mr. Smile. You know, that's what his reputation was in Cleveland as in addition to being just a really good all-star caliber player. This was the guy who was supposed to be loose. who was supposed to be having fun all the time. And you got the sense in his first year 
it really just wasn't the case. And he said something last spring, early in spring training, that really stuck with me. And I'm paraphrasing, but uh, talking about what would be different year two versus year one, uh, he said, I feel a lot more relaxed. And I just came to this realization that I don't have to be all things to all people. And I think you could almost see him trying to do that in his first year where he was trying to be everything to his teammates. He was trying to be everything to the media. He was trying to be Mr. New York, a man about town, uh, while also being one of the best players in baseball. And I think he came to the realization that he doesn't have to be all that. He can just be himself and it'll all happen naturally. And, and it did. And look, being healthy helped as well. Uh, played in a career high games last year. He was one of the healthiest players in baseball. And there's no reason to think he can't continue to do that. Um, you know, still very much in his prime. So it was a, a nice turnaround for Francisco Lindor. Mets fans of a certain age will remember something similar for Carlos Beltran, uh, you know, a perennial all-star before he came to New York, wound up really struggling his first year and then turned it around. And that wound up being one of the best long-term contracts, frankly, uh, you know, pound for pound in Major League history. So I'm not saying Lindor is going to be that, but skill-wise he certainly can be, and he can certainly still make good on that 341. I want to take a step back and talk about this division as a whole because this is currently the only division on Pagoda with three teams projected to win at least 89 games. The only other division with even two 90-game winners projected is the NL West, but there is a large drop-off there between the Padres and then the Giants. But in the NL East, we have the Phillies who were in the World Series last year, and we have the Braves who won it the year before. And I am so excited to see how this division plays out. I think I've seen maybe the biggest mix of who is going to win this division. We'll get to that a little bit later. Of course, the Phillies just added Trey Turner, Mr. America right now. And uh, they will be missing Bryce Harper until some point around the All-Star break. And then you have the Braves who have the reigning Rookie of the Year winner and second place in uh, Michael Harris and Spencer Strider. So I guess my question to you is just when is the last time you saw a division like this with the top three of this? And have you ever covered something like this? What are you expecting from it? Yeah, definitely not. Um, you know, long gone are the days of 2015, which no disrespect to the 2015 Mets who made the World Series. But, um, you know, back in those days, it was and even back in, in you know, 06, 07, uh, usually it was like 90 wins would get you the division. If you won 90, you were good. And that's obviously not the case this year. It's an absolute gauntlet. Um, you know, to answer your question, I think it reminds me a little bit of the AL East back maybe about 10 years ago when the Yankees, Red Sox, and Rays were duking it out every single year. Um, what strikes me about the NL East this year, Sarah, is not just that there are three really good teams at the top. Those three teams don't have obvious weaknesses. Like All three of them have good lineups. All three of them have good rotations. All three of them have good bullpens, which I never thought I'd say about a Philadelphia Phillies team, but it's probably the best Phillies bullpen I've ever seen. Um, and, you know, all three have ways where you could see it going wrong. In the Mets case, it's, it's what we just talked about, that aging rotation. If they suffer, you know, continue to suffer injuries there, you can see it going wrong. Um, in the Braves case, 
you look at, well, they did nothing at shortstop. So how do they combat that? Are they going to be okay at the back of their rotation? Um, same with the Phillies, relying on some younger guys. Are they going to be okay there? So it, it's really anyone's for the taking. And I know the projection systems say the Mets are the favorites. I would argue that, yes, they have the highest ceiling. I, I would also argue that I'm a big proponent of you got to beat the champs. And that's what I said at this time last year. And the Mets were unable to topple the Braves in the NL East. And, um, and then, of course, look at what the Phillies did once they wound up getting in the playoffs. So I, I truly think this is a, a true three-team race. I'm, I'm super pumped to see how it goes out because they're going to be out for blood, all three teams. These are going to be some fun games when they go up head-to-head. Um, different schedule this year. They're not facing each other 19 times like usual, but uh, that's going to make those head-to-head matchups probably even all the more important because um, whoever comes away with the most of them is probably going to be the one standing up top at the end. Obviously, those three teams are going to get a lot of the attention this year, nearly all of the attention this year in that division, and rightfully so. But I really want to highlight the Marlins as well, just these teams that that can sort of slip under the radar whenever there's so much attention going to others. Um, I'm, I'm curious what it's like to be able to see, obviously not as much this year with the new schedule, but a player like Jazz Chisholm and the way that, that he plays the game. I know he had a stretch of, what, like 60 games last year or so where he was just absolutely unbelievable. Um, does it seem from afar, obviously you're not with that team every day, that he could be a player that can put that together consistently? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's got all the tools. You don't get on the cover of MLB The Show for nothing. Uh, I mean, he is pound for pound one of the most exciting players, I think, in the league. I think he deserves that. Um, so it's fun. And, and that's the thing is, yes, there are two teams in the NL East that aren't expected to compete, but the Marlins are a great example. Like, if you're the Mets, you're the Braves, you're the Phillies, and you're playing them, well, you're going to have to prep for Sandy Alcantara, who just won the Cy Young. I mean, that's no easy assignment. Um, you're going to have to score against one of the best pitchers in baseball to beat the Marlins, even though the Marlins are probably going to finish in fourth or fifth place. So it's, it's, it is a true gauntlet. Um, you can't let up. You have to beat up on those lesser teams. But those lesser teams have a lot of talent, too, and some high upside talent at the top of their rosters. So um, super exciting. Yeah, to answer your question, I think Jazz Chisholm is a, is a really fun player to watch. And more than that, is a really good player because sometimes we, we mistake that one doesn't necessarily mean the other. In his case, it's the same. Fun to watch and just extremely good at baseball. So the way we wrap this up with uh, each of the five beat reporters we've spoken to before, you were the last, we went West Seas, is by asking you to rank for us how you think the division will finish one through five, and then giving us a wins prediction for the team you cover. So to give you a moment to think, I'm going to read off what Pakoda has right now for the wins projections. It has the Mets at 94, Phillies at 90, Braves at 89.9, Marlins at 79, and the Nationals at 61. Yeah. It's it's so tough because those teams at the top are so tight, and I, I would put them tighter than Dakota does. Although eighty nine point nine to ninety, I guess is pretty is pretty close. <laughs> Going, in, I mean, to go in reverse order, yeah, I think the Nationals will finish in fifth. There's just not enough talent there yet. Um, although they're going to be a force, you know, probably sooner rather than later. Um, I'll put the Marlins in fourth. No surprises there yet. It's funny that Dakota puts the Braves third because. 
I thought that was going to be maybe my hot take is putting them third. Um, you can kind of see the cracks there, uh, how it can go wrong if it goes wrong. I hate betting against the multi-time division champions, but I'm going to go chalk here. I'm going to put the Braves third. I'm going to put the Phillies second. And I'm going to put the Mets first. Um, what's interesting is that I think the Mets have the clearest path to not meeting their projection. I think, once again, those injuries in the rotation could derail things really, really fast in New York, and you could have a very expensive mess on your hands if that happens. But the upside of the roster is just so good. Um, there's no real weaknesses. I like the depth of the pitching. Uh, the Mets are already dipping into it, which isn't great. But I'm not betting against Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer. Uh, I just think... These Mets are a little bit battle-tested now. They're hungry. They want to go out there and win it. Um, they've seen what it takes to do so. So uh, maybe it's a homer pick. I don't know. I, I, it wouldn't shock me one bit to see any of those three teams even run away with the division if things go wrong for the other two. But as for right now, I'm going with the talent. I'm going with the chalk. I'm putting the Mets number one. I like it. You know, we're a week out right now, a week in a day from, from opening day. And I've gone back and forth on who I am going to pick to win this division since like February 1st. So <laughs> I'm not even going to commit to one right now, even though you we have made to. You, you made me commit to one. Ah, I mean, I think somewhere I submitted the briefs, but then you convinced me otherwise. I've been really convinced that the Phillies can do this even without Bryce Harper. And of course, most recent reports were that they're hoping to get him back even sooner than expected. But as you said, I mean, if that pitching stays healthy for the Mets, I do think that they are the favorites for a reason. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. We had such a blast doing all of this and uh, chatting with you. So thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here. Thanks, guys. Happy to come on. Happy opening day. Sarah, we're going to get into all of it. We have so much to cover in such a short period of time. So stay with us and we'll get to all things WBC and Sarah's two-week-long journey when we come back. Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm Mandy, that's Sarah. And Sarah, that is so nice to see you in front of your usual baseball wall um, because I I don't even know how we made the last two weeks work with and press boxes and uh, what a mess, I should say. But uh, such a great experience, I'm sure, for you and... I want to hear all about it, and I think the first thing that I sort of want to set up for you is, you know, at the time we're recording this, it was last night, it's going into the final inning, you have Shohei Otani on the mound, two outs, USA is down by one, and Mike Trout, his teammate, who he had already said he was most looking forward to facing, is coming up to the plate. What is that? What is that moment like as you're watching him come up to the plate? What is the crowd like? What are you thinking? Like, it seems so storybook that it didn't seem like. 
It makes no sense. So I think you kind of have to go back to the eighth. You have to go back to you, Darvish, coming in and knowing that at least two guys had to reach base for Otani if he were to come in to face Trout because of where they were in the lineup. And he has this epic 10-pitch battle with Kyle Schwarber in a 3-1 game that ends in a home run. By the way, the home run that we had you react to live on air, right, was the Schwarber home run off of Darvish in the postseason. So uh, they have a history there. Schwarber fouling off pitches. One of the foul balls was like 115 miles an hour off his bat. I mean... And it was one of those at-bats where you keep thinking if he just strains that out, that's a home run. 98% of those at-bats end in a strikeout or something else. They don't end in the guy actually hitting the home run. He hits the home run. There's one other batter to reach base. And everyone collectively realizes, oh my gosh, number three, the bottom of the ninth, is going to be Mike Trout. And I mean, I think I got chills at that point. And honestly, the longest inning of my life. And this is me with no horse in the race. I was not rooting for either team. I was rooting for good baseball. The longest inning of my life was when Japan came to bat. Because I'm there stressed out, waiting for this to happen hoping they don't bat around too much that Otani would have to jog back in again. He jogged back and forth, I think, three times while warming up and also DHing. He goes out to the bullpen. He had to come back in case he batted in one inning. He didn't bat that inning, went back, then came back, <laughs> hit a 114-mile-an-hour infield single, goes back, all that. So anyway... Japan is batting in the nine. Then I'm like, can we just end this? I don't care. I know they might want insurance runs. I understand that. But I can't handle this. We need to get to the top of the nine. Uh, and we get there. And then Jeff McDill works that walk. Jeff McDill, who, by the way, saw Otani better than anyone else on Team USA. He walks. He spikes his bat. He's fired up. You're thinking... What happens if Otani blows this? Again, I'm not rooting for the U.S. or for Japan. I don't care who wins. But for baseball's sake, we don't want Otani coming on that stage and blowing the game. I mean, that would be really, really bad. But if he were to allow it to get tied, maybe he could hit a walk-off home run. So again, the brain is moving far too fast. And we it's like trying to savor the moment, but also needing it to happen so that you stop thinking up all of the millions of possibilities of what could happen. And then Mookie Benz, of course, hits into that double play. And I turn, and I'm just like, I can't believe this is happening. And, you know, I saw Michael uh, Claire, who covered all of the WBC for us, he was in Tokyo, and then he was in Miami. And I saw him tweet about how the press box, and you know this and I know this, can often be full of people who are a bit jaded. I mean, I've been there at World Series games, and 
I'm always in such awe that I'm there. But yeah, when you've been covering this for 10, 15 years, no disrespect to anybody, but yeah, it's not a bright, shiny new thing, and I understand that. But there was a feeling in this press box of everyone kind of realizing, is this really going to happen? I mean, again, there were all those jokes a while back about, what was it, the NFL being scripted, like as a complete joke. I mean, you couldn't have written a better script. And even the at-bat, I mean, I saw a stat about, you know, Mike Trout takes a lot of first pitches and doesn't swing wildly at all. He swung and missed three times at Otani's pitches. He's only done that in, I believe, 24 of his career plate appearances. He's taken more than 6,000 plate appearances. I mean, he is a multi-time MVP, so it was just this surreal feeling of we're witnessing something that people are going to remember for a long time, and it was just an amazing moment. I mean, I still can't believe, you know, I tweeted this uh, this afternoon or this morning, I have no sense of time. I still can't believe it ended that way. I mean, if you went back to the beginning of the WBC, or even when guys started committing back last summer, and Otani said he was in, and Trout said he was in, which was a huge deal. In your wildest dreams, you might have thought, what if they face off in the ninth with it on the line? I mean, you would have thought if Otani had started a game, we got that moment in the first inning, then that would have been incredible. For that to be how it ended, I mean, just amazing. And I think we as fans of the game and baseball for all the efforts that went into this tournament, we deserve this. The world deserved this. And I'm just so glad that it happened. What was it like to watch the Trey Turner experience? Oh my gosh. I mean, you've seen that when a player is just on, mm-hmm. whether it's in the regular season, we've seen in the postseason with the guys. I think of Randy Rosarena, who of course also did it in the WBC, but had that time in the postseason when Juan was covering him uh, for the race. And you think of those moments when you just know the guy's going to get the hit. I mean, I said this to Basharolni the other day, but when Trey Turner hit the grand slam, I'd already looked up the note. Not that I was calling it. I mean, that's my job to be ready. But I wouldn't necessarily be ready for every batter ever. You just had that feeling. And I mean, I was, I tweet about this and I keep coming back to this. And it also applies to Masataka Yoshida in a different way. But I'm so happy for Phillies fans who, for the first time, got to see Trey Turner on the biggest stage and say, hey, that's our shortstop for many years to come. 
and see him and see what he was doing. If you're a Phillies fan, you probably weren't the biggest fan of him when he was on the Nationals because he was very good. And then you were kind of apathetic because he was in the NL West with the Dodgers. And now you see him and you're like, wow, he is on my team. And similarly with Yoshida on Japan, who set the record for OBIs in a single WBC. Now it's a little different because you've never seen him in an MLB game, as opposed to with Cerner having seen him on other teams. But how about that for an intro? <laughs> Seeing the guy come out, win one for his country, and really carry the team offensively. I mean, if Shohei Otani... <laughs> It's kind of like all the conversations about MVP. But you can make a Judge Otani argument for Yoshida versus Otani for MVP of that tournament. Now, with the way it ended and Otani getting the save, it was very clear it would be Otani. But if not for that, you might go to the guy who set a bunch of offensive records for a team that by the way, has an amazing WBC history to start. So I just love seeing a player like that be locked in. And it's really cool to see it. It's cool to see it from anyone. But to see it from Trey Turner, to go back to him, to see it from an MLB player, when there are people out there who say, oh, I'd rather they just be at spring training. I think seeing that from a guy whose opening day is in a week kind of helps quiet that. If he's able to turn it up two weeks early, anyone can. And it has to be at least relieving in some weird, odd way for Phillies fans to see what Trey Turner did during this tournament, this classic, whatever you want to define it as, when they know that they're Bryce Harper is going to be out for a significant period of time. Now, I know you already said this earlier in the show, how the reports are he could be back earlier, but no matter what, you're missing months without him. Um, and so you get to this point where, okay, he, you might miss the guy who made the postseason so electric for your team and was so critical for your team, but now you're seeing... There's someone else that could get into this mix who could make this just as fun and then sort of bridge that gap until he comes back. And then if they're both on at the same time, geez, imagine what that could be like. So that has to be fun. And we didn't even see arguably his best asset in sure. this tournament. I mean, this was about power for him. He is a great hitter. But Trey Turner, you know um my friend and our colleague Jason Bernard has taken to saying that Trey Turner is one of the most important players in 2023. Not just important to his team, but important to Major League Baseball and the sport because he is, you know, the reigning fastest man minus a month from Corbin Carroll. And seeing how the rules changes with disengagements, larger bases, all of that affect the run game is going to go through Trey Turner. We're going to see a lot of differences in guys on bases. We've talked about that with 40-40 season potentials. 
but one microcosm of that will be the fastest man in baseball. And that wasn't even what this was about. So now bring him back to MLB, bring him to an environment that has been put together to hopefully encourage guys like him to steal even more bases and hit the ball like that. I mean, again, that's why I was waffling so much about who is going to win that division. If he is playing, he won't play like that every single day because that is a postseason on the tier atmosphere. But if he is that player, they will be okay until uh, Bryce Harper is back for sure. Did you, okay, it, this this is probably going to be an impossible question for you to answer because I know you and there's going to be probably a couple tangents off of one idea. So let me just start with it. Do you have a favorite moment from everything? You started out here in Arizona. I say out here because I'm still out here. It feels like I've been out here for four years, but I'm still out here. Um, and you got to watch the pool that was here and then advanced over to Miami, whenever all the teams then came into Miami who advanced. Between all of that, was there one moment for you that if someone says, what was the highlight for you that you could go back to? Oh my gosh, I'm taking my time here. I mean, I know we talked last week about uh, the pitcher for Nicaragua who got offered the contract. We talked about the pitcher from Israel who struck out Manny Machado and others. So I'm not going to take those. I mean, I think for me, and I didn't witness those in person, I think I'm going to go with something from the last few days. So before the Mexico-Japan game, Shohei Otani took batting practice, which in and of itself is actually a big deal. He always hits in the indoor cage. He's not a hit on the field before the game kind of guy. Toward the end of Japan's BP, he comes out. I'm standing I'm, you know, behind the plate where all the media is and everyone kind of crushes and more. Everyone's watching, not just media, but Cece Sabathia is watching, Adam Jones is watching, I mean, they're all there. Every phone is out. <laughs> he hits a monster tanks to right field and right center. I mean, home runs that look like 450, 480, 500. I mean, we don't have numbers, but he hit the ball really, really far with these and then after the game he was asked about it and he said he wanted to show Mexico what would happen if they left the ball out over the plate like that and he's just the most amazing showman and that's exactly who he is and then he did take BP again before the final same thing right towards the end, everyone watching, and you know, you've covered World Series games, you've covered postseason, you've been the home run derby, the ulcer game, the media, the quantity of media, and the focus felt like game seven of the World Series. So just 
witnessing that and the fact that he brought that, that is probably what will stick with me the longest beyond the way the game ended, of course, but I don't want to go the obvious route there. My gosh, uh, there's there just had to be so much stuff. I, I guess the last one that I have for you is more just like, what was it like to do stats for this event? I mean, you were there to be the stats person for the WBC. I mean, I saw your emails pop up in my inbox every single day. It turns out you found out how to send an email to over a thousand people. But um, uh, just like what, what was it like to be solely responsible for an event of this magnitude of finding all the little details that I'm sure everyone uh, ended up using all, in their stories. The uh, secret was that I had to send it three times because I can only email 500 ah. people at once. And the list was more than, uh, yeah, it was more than a thousand. So there were three I would press send at the same time. Um, had to get special permission to send to a few internal distros like all MLB users, which was a wild moment. Uh, but yeah, we made it work, I made it work. It was amazing, I mean, it was so much fun, you know. As I think I explained, I mean, I research every day, this is what I do. But writing game notes is a separate kind of job. It uses the type of information I always grab, but the people who do that do such a great job. All of the pure folks with every team, with Major League Baseball, so on and so forth. So I just have even more respect and appreciation for them, for what they do on a daily basis, writing game notes for teams after doing that for all of those days straight. But it was really fun to have to figure out what mattered from every game for every team and keeping track of records, you know. It's interesting because during the season, when Mike Trout does something, plenty of people know what's coming, know what the record is, are aware of it. The WBC is newer and there's less information maybe publicly out there it's not really a baseball reference or what have you so it was a bit more of a puzzle because for instance i looked up about japan's pitching staff entering the final game and i noticed there were like four strikeouts away from the most in a single tournament and i don't think I'm not saying that was me. Someone would have found it otherwise. But it's more of a puzzle because the immediate records aren't just out there. So hopefully that makes sense. But it was so much fun. And so many people came up to me and were like, thanks for your email. And I was like, I don't know what to say, but oh. you're welcome. <laughs> 
Oh, that's awesome. I mean, okay, I know we could go on forever about this. Is there anything that we didn't get to in what this, this experience was like? I know Rob Manfred was talking today, Wednesday, March 22nd, the day we're recording this, about how much of a success this was, how this is definitely going to be coming back again. And I think it was clear. It seemed like there was just so much more attention to it this year than I, what I remember in the past. Um, was there anything for you that we missed talking about what this was like? The only other thing I wanted to mention, I kind of mentioned at the beginning when you asked me before mm -hmm. you talked to Anthony, the crowds were incredible. I mean, you hear drums, you hear trumpets, you hear tambourines, you hear noisemakers, and just constant cheering. Not just when the scoreboard says, everybody clap your hands, but right. all the time at random junctures. And it was really, really cool to hear that atmosphere so many days in a row. From what I talked like with players um, in the Guardians Clubhouse, like Richie Palacios, he was on Team Netherlands. He went over to Taiwan. Just talking with him, he was like, the atmosphere was unmatched. Like, I have never seen anything like it. He said, I asked him what the coolest part of the whole trip was. He got to go out and see the town with his family. His parents were there. He was on the team with his brother. So he's like, I got to see all this stuff. It was really cool. But, like, the best moment was just seeing how intense the crowd was. Like, they would sit there and they would sing the players' walk-up song not just like as it's going on when the player's walking to the plate, but it would continue throughout the entire plate appearance. And he was like, there will never be a crowd or an atmosphere like that that I'll play in front of again. It was just, it, it's cool to hear um, different cultures. Players got to experience so many different things. So it seems awesome. Obviously, I would have loved to, to see more than what I was able to, but geez, well, now I can live through it, through you and all of these stories. So that it just seemed like such an amazing event. And I think now, because we, what, went through as many amazing things from this, let's just go straight into our favorite moments in baseball. Your last chance to bring up the WBC for a while. So we'll step aside real quick, come up with our, with our answers, and we'll come back with our favorite moments in baseball from the past week. Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm Mandy, she's Sarah, and we have a third, uh, as we have been for the past few weeks. We'll bring on our lovely producer, Alana Schreiber, and we'll have her join in for our favorite moments in baseball from the past week. Um, obviously, have been very WBC-focused, and I'm sure that'll be another trend as we're continuing in this final week of wrapping everything up. Uh, Alana, do you want to kick us off with your favorite moment from baseball? I would love to. There were... So many amazing WBC moments I could choose from. Pictures of Lars Newbar and Joey Otani just bonding in the dugout and Lindor's inside the park home run that I was like preparing salmon and watching that and just like screaming and <laughs> with my salmon. Um, but actually my favorite moment from the past week is not WBC related or even MLB related. It's college mm. baseball related 
because Christina Pachardo made history becoming the first woman to play for a D1 team. She plays for Brown University and she made her first plate appearance making history. She pinch hit in the ninth. Uh, She did ground out, but like, who cares? She made contact. And even if she didn't, that's just so huge for women in baseball. You know, I obviously once wanted to be the first female shortstop for the Mets. Um, That's not going to happen, but (laughs) I'm just so excited for Christina. She's only a freshman. She's also from Forest Hills, Queens, which is where I'm from originally, where my whole family is from. So I'm just so happy that as a Queens person, we get to claim her. And yeah, I mean, she's got a really amazing career ahead of her, and I just can't wait to follow it and see what she does next. That's a great one. I mean, I I wasn't really even thinking beyond that, but I remember reading that my parents were just out here visiting me in Arizona, and that popped up on my phone. I was like, whoa. I read it out loud. I'm like, this is pretty cool. So uh, I'm glad you highlighted that because I get so hyper-focused on the world that we're in that I forgot about, you know, baseball that exists outside of these walls. So I'm glad you brought that one up. Sarah? Go ahead. Yeah, so I'm so glad you said that one as well because I had forgotten that was this week. That is how disoriented I am. I remember when she made the team uh, a couple months ago, but amazing that she finally debuted. So I don't remember what I was thinking I was going to go with because when I got home from the WBC today, the wildest, most amazing thing that just shows the growth of this tournament happened. So there was construction going on on the block outside my apartment building. Get out of the Uber, have some suitcases. We're kind of grabbing everything. And the guy who's directing traffic for the construction site comes over and says, Hey, do you guys want a hand? And we're like, oh, we're fine. And he's like, no, no, I got you. So he grabs the stuff and we go like around a corner. And we have suitcases, so very normal question asked. He says, where are you guys getting back from? And we say Miami. And the guy goes, oh, I was just there for the World Baseball Classic. I left after the Puerto Rico-Venezuela game. And I'm like, oh my gosh, no way, that's where we were. And we saw all the numbers, all the attendance numbers, everything was shattered, this WBC, in terms of records. But to randomly meet a guy working construction site (laughs) outside where I live, who was at one of those games right before I got there, I mean... Absolutely amazing, and I think it shows how much this tournament has grown. So not really a moment directly in baseball, but related to baseball and just something that absolutely blew my mind. I was on the treadmill today, and I had my AirPods in, and so Siri reads me, (laughs) whatever happens. And all I get, like, I mean, it'll read whatever message comes up usually and I get this Sarah Langs has sent a long message and I'm like "Uh oh (laughs) so I was running and I'm like let me turn down the pace of this so I can grab my phone without dying and falling off the treadmill 
Um, and you sent the whole thing explaining it all. And you were like, the most incredible thing just happened. I'm like, oh, I got to read this right now. So that was, uh, that was cool. I mean, I was not shocked to hear you start telling that story because what are the odds? You're so many miles away and you're getting back home and someone was just at the same place that you were coming from. So cool story, awesome moment. Um, and saved me from having to run a couple extra minutes. So, uh, I, perfect moment. Um, for me, I, since you guys sort of danced around the baseball topics, I'll go straight in and make mine baseball related, but it's like a team. Let's just say it's a team related rather than being on the baseball field. Um, Sarah, you sent it to me. It was by far the best thing I've seen of spring training so far. The Seattle Mariners killed it this week with their social media recording some guys on, on their squad taking a golf cart down main roads to get to In-N-Out and not only just get to In-N-Out, but order basically every single burger in their entire store, which was so funny. You had Thai France, J.P. Crawford up in the front seats. Um, I don't remember even who was sitting in the back. Uh, who Cal was it? Raleigh and then... Um, yes. I think Brendan. I'm not sure in the other was, but Cal Raleigh. I can't remember. Right yeah. And so um, the reason we don't remember is because the, the videos were, were focused solely on uh, Crawford and uh, France. So we, that's really what the main focus was. And those two uh, should have their own reality show the way that they were doing this. Uh, it, one, it started out so funny to see this little golf cart on a main road and they were trying to make a turn. And so France asked Crawford to turn on the turn signal and Crawford just has his arm <laughs> like coming out of the weird small vehicle on this main road um, to signify that they'll be turning right. They go into the parking lot, they get in the long line, and they order, you know, how the, um, the people are standing outside at In-N-Out. If you've never been, they have a drive through window, but the, the drive through line gets so insanely long. There's not like you just get up to the little voice box thing that you talk into. There's people who greet you long before that because they're just going car to car to try to get ahead and allow this process to go as quickly as possible. So they pull up to the guy who's standing out there waiting for whatever their order would be, and they order 150 double-doubles, I think, and 60 fries. And the guy looked at him like, are you serious? Like, is this for real? He's like, I don't know if we can do that. So then Ty France takes his headset. It was offered. It was offered. He didn't just rip it off of his head. He said, do you want to talk to them and explain it? So he gets on the headset, starts talking to the people inside, explaining his order that he wanted. They made him pull up. As they were waiting for their food, they asked for the in-and-out hats, and the four of them are sitting on the golf cart wearing in-and-out hats. Um, and then they got the, the burgers and fries sent out to them. They, people inside were curious why there was 150 for burgers but only 60 fries. <laughs> and I think Ty France said something about how some guys were on a diet, so they had to uh -huh. watch what they were eating. It was just so, it was so fun, so different, things that we don't usually see. The fact that they're willing to uh, camera up the golf cart like that so that we could see inside and that the guys were so willing to do something like that and, and go on the road, it's a blast. And I think more of this needs to happen during like a relaxed type of setting like spring training is for everyone to be able to feel like they're part of it. One of the best moments was, uh, so Cal Raleigh was in the back, and on their way back, he dug in and started eating a burger. And he goes, hey guys, I already started. And they're like, well, what? 
And he goes, hey, one in Rome. <laughs> and then everyone else in the golf cart goes, we're in Glendale. We're in Peoria. Which is just like this moment of like, where are we? Very, very funny. I do want to mention because people on Twitter were like, I work in food service. This stressed me out. The Mariners did call the order ahead. So just so we know, this wasn't unexpected. And the other funny thing to me was, if you don't know, the Mariners and Padres share a uh, facility, right? Peoria is them too. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were some Padres fans that came up to them in the parking lot. And one of them was saying to Ty France, like, well, you used to be a Padre. Like, maybe the Padres are better, you know, just fan things. He's like, yeah, I used to be, but I'm not anymore. And then one of them said to the kid, like, hey, you should change that brown to a teal as in get a Mariner's jersey. And he goes, I told you that last week, too. Which is just such a funny spring training moment that people are around for so long. So yeah, if you haven't watched them, there are a few moments we didn't spoil. So highly, highly recommend on the Mariners Twitter and YouTube pages. Yeah, shout out the Mariners for giving me the highlight of the week. I thought that was great. Highlight of spring, it was fantastic. But... I think that'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or you have any suggestions for us at all, please leave us a rating and a review. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and we'll see you next week.